This series includes discussions of sensitive topics, including transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. It was late August of 2021. The jury was physically and emotionally exhausted. They had just sat through a week and a half of graphic testimony in the murder trial of David Bogdanov, who had claimed self-defense for strangling Nikki Kuhnhausen. The jurors had listened to almost 40 witnesses testify for hours on end. And now, they were in the middle of trying to reach a consensus on a verdict. It was like we put in all this work. We've sat through this trial for two weeks. Juror number three, Brittany, went into deliberations with her peers on Wednesday, August 25th. By Thursday, the jurors found themselves deadlocked. Some of them were concerned about potential juror misconduct involving a single juror who the others believed was allowing her own personal bias to interfere with reaching a verdict. And they said she was refusing to deliberate any further. And emotions were really high at that point. Like, there were tears. I mean, I even, I was more angry than anything because I couldn't understand how this person couldn't see the truth when it was laid right out in front of us. The presiding juror wrote a letter to the judge asking for the uncooperative juror to be replaced by an alternate. And we sent a letter to the judge saying that this juror was not budging. They were not changing their mind, and so there was no reason for us to go any further because this person was very adamant about not finding David guilty based on the word intent. She did not think that he intended to kill Nikki. Finding itself in a predicament, the court took a recess to regroup. Then the judge carefully read through the instructions on deliberations for the jury one more time and sent them back into the jury room with hopes that they would be able to reach a decision. Everyone feared that a hung jury would lead to a mistrial. You were worried there could be a mistrial. I was terrified. They deliberated late into the evening on Thursday, and they broke for the night, still with no consensus. Did you go home just feeling fried emotionally and just, like, not knowing what's going to happen the next day? Oh, yeah. Like you said, I felt fried. Like, my brain was, like, I couldn't even, like, form thoughts at that point because I was just so emotionally exhausted. But the next morning, when jurors reconvened at the courthouse, the holdout juror announced she'd made a decision. We went in and we all sat down. And that juror said, I thought about it, I slept on it, and I can confidently say that I feel comfortable writing down a verdict. And so they said, you know, yes, this is my final decision. David Bogdanov was about to learn his fate, and Nikki Kuhnhausen's family would find out if they'd get justice. I'm Ashley Korslin. You're listening to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. This is episode six of six, Justice for Nikki. Oh, you're 
yeah, I think I was just very close to work about the park, and I think, in fact, I think I was coming into the parking lot when I got the call from the judicial assistant that they had a verdict. Senior Deputy Prosecutor Colin Hayes got the call just before 9 a.m. Friday that he needed to get to the courtroom immediately. What sort of emotions come with that, like anticipation? Well, relief that they weren't going to, you know, be a hung jury or that we weren't going to have to go into this appellate minefield. So relief that we had a verdict. Yeah. And we were going to get an answer. Hayes and his fellow deputy prosecutor, Kristen Arnault, got there as fast as they could. So did Justice for Nikki task force member Lyndon Walls. And so Friday, I actually called out of work. Who joined other activists and Nikki's mom, Lisa Woods. Um, and then we all went into the courtroom and we were all holding hands. Um, and we spread past just the side that we were assigned to um, and across, kind of across the back. We were informed uh, that the jury has reached a verdict. They, when they got in the courtroom, the judge welcomed everyone. Uh, are we ready to receive the verdict then? Yes, Your Honor. The tension in the room was palpable. So, whatever the decision is, nothing vocal. Your opinions are all yours. Everybody has a lot invested into this. No reaction one way or the other. Okay. That's like the, t- like the time between when they come in and when it goes up to the judge and when the judge reads it. It's like... Prosecutors Colin Hayes and Kristen Arnault. It's yeah, you're like white knuckling it, but like trying hard. is hard not to actually visibly white knuckle it. It's like hard to describe, even when you're confident of the outcome. It's still that. It's like a tough, tough few minutes. Yeah. Everyone in the room stood up as the jury walked in. Lisa and her advocates held hands as they anxiously awaited the verdict. David Bogdanov stood next to his attorneys, wearing a gray suit and a black mask. And please be seated in the gallery. <clears throat> he clutched his hands together in front of him. We were informed that the jury has now reached a verdict. Uh, Mr. Presiding Juror, is that accurate then? Correct, yes. All right, will you please hand... The presiding juror handed the verdict form to the judge, who read it aloud to the courtroom. Verdict form count one. We, the jury, find the above-named defendant guilty of the crime of murder in the second degree as charged in count one. Verdict form count two, we the jury find the above named defendant guilty of the crime of malicious harassment as charged in count two. The jury found David Bogdanov guilty on both charges, second degree murder and malicious harassment, Washington's hate crime charge. And um, that, in that moment, felt like a little bit of justice and victory. Because for the jury deliberation part, we weren't sure where it was going to end up. You know, it could have ended up in mistrial. A huge weight was instantly lifted for Nikki's family and for the prosecutors. Just relief. Relief. I mean, honestly, when they read guilty on the murder, too, it was was massive relief. Um, And then... when we got the guilty on the malicious harassment, it was, it was really great. And uh, the gallery, um, Lisa and her supporters were very happy with that. They were... Just to, you know, label it what it was, a hate crime, in essence. What was that like, that very moment? 
I think. And it was also a relief for jurors like Brittany, who worked so hard to reach this decision. I was looking at uh, David's reaction and I was looking at his defense team and then I was watching his family. And I don't remember him really having that big of a reaction. Um, his family started crying and was very upset. Um, but then looking at the prosecution team, you know, and just like smiling at them and making eye contact with them. And they did such a fantastic job um, in this case. So just kind of making eye contact with them and, you know, kind of like the we did it kind of thing. It was very rewarding to be able to see David's reaction when they read that verdict out loud. And we were very excited with the outcome. And although, you know, I feel bad for David's family, what he did was his choice and he has to pay for that. Do you think about this case still to this day? I do. Yeah, it's, you know, before getting into this case, you know, I didn't really know that the trans community and crimes against trans people, um, a lot of those crimes are really just kind of swept under the rug. They don't get a lot of attention. Um, and after doing the, being on this jury for this case and learning more about the trans community and how they don't get the same justice that everybody else does and they don't get the same attention and it was just really surprising to me how many crimes against trans people are like really kind of hidden and not talked about. So the fact that this case, it, the guilty verdict really kind of helped with a movement for the trans community was like huge. This is going to be something that's like legendary and this is something that's going to help other trans communities along in the future and really help people see the importance of sticking up for trans lives. Please be seated. Almost two weeks after the jury convicted David Bogdanov on both charges, everyone returned to the same courtroom for David's sentencing hearing. David wore a bright orange jail jumpsuit. Nikki's mom, Lisa, was there too. During the trial, when David took the stand, Lisa had left the courtroom while he spoke. All right, Miss uh, Woods? Now, she was back in the same room with her daughter's killer. You can come up here to the... Uh... This time, Lisa got to speak directly to the judge, pleading for the strongest penalty possible. Nikki strove to create beauty and joy in other people's lives. She was an amazing daughter, sister, auntie, niece, and best friend. Lisa talked about how she'd never celebrate another birthday for Nikki or watch her daughter get married someday. And she described the emotional toll Nikki's murder had taken on the family. David has taken so much from all of us. Lisa closed her remarks by asking the judge to give David the maximum penalty allowed by law. What was that like emotionally, mentally preparing yourself for that? I was a wreck. I, it was really hard. Um, it was really hard to be in the same room with him. I wanted to make a... understood that Nikki's life, you know, was just as important as any other child out there, and the hatred that he released upon my daughter 
needed to be acknowledged and punished and, and made aware that it's not okay. It's not okay to have hate like that. Before announcing the sentence, Superior Court Judge David Gregerson gave David an opportunity to address the court, to say something to Nikki's loved ones, perhaps to express remorse. Mr. Bogdanov, you have a right of allocution. You have a right to make a statement directly to the court. If there's anything you want to say at this time, if so, please rise when you do speak. No. Okay, so for the record, he's declined to exercise his uh, right of allocution. David chose not to say anything. So, um, Judge Gregerson, however, had a lot to say. He had compiled a thoughtful three-page monologue that he delivered to the court. So again, it has been an extraordinary case uh, for this court and for the community. It's caused me to think a lot about Nikki Kuhnhausen. Everyone in this courtroom was 17 at one point in his or her life. Um, some of us have children who went through that stage or who will go through it soon. As a parent myself, I attempted to think about what Nikki went through in those months leading up to June 6, 2019, and during the final hours of her shortened life. During the course of this trial, I was struck by the darker nature of this crime. It conjures up old childhood legends of the boogeyman, of trust gone terribly wrong. It appears to have been a random intersection of two young people, one aged 24 and the other aged 17. Their meeting lasted only a few hours, premised on mutual extensions of trust with a stranger on the opposite side. Those hours dramatically and tragically changed the trajectory of both lives. Then Judge Gregerson shifted the focus to what he called the bright shining lights of the case, all the people, no matter how big or small a role they played, who helped get justice for Nikki. I've been a judge in this community now for almost nine years. I cannot recall any case where I've seen such a display of tenacity and professionalism by so many of our public servants. Although many people are drawn to the spectacle of the darker details of this case, I choose to see the bright, shining lights. The beargrass picker, who found Nikki's remains and reported immediately to the authorities, even though he did not speak any English. The detectives and an army of officers who slogged on a steep ravine in Northeast Clark County on a dark and wet December day to document a crime scene in granular GPS detail. The detectives, scientists, and forensic specialists who utilized state-of-the-art techniques to help answer the most enigmatic questions about what happened to Nikki and the 12 dedicated jurors who put their lives on hold and their heads and hearts to work for two intense weeks to answer the call of civic duty. None of them knew Nikki personally, but they understood their charge with quiet determination and profundity. And they did not do it because Nikki or her family were rich or powerful or celebrities but because she was one of us and deserves fairness <clears throat> in this court consistent with our lofty foundational ideals of equality and community. I hope that as a monument to Nikki Kuhnhausen, 
a child of our Clark County community, the efforts by all those who assisted in this case, the legal proceedings, and the movement towards something resembling justice may be seen as a step in the greater overall movement from darkness toward light. In this court's view, that can and should be Nikki Kuhnhausen's legacy. In the end, Judge Gregerson sentenced David Bogdanov to the top end of the sentencing range, just under 20 years in prison. What did you think about the sentence and how it all ended up? Here's Lisa. Well, I think the guidelines uh, on sentencing are not okay in Washington state um, because someone with a record would have gotten more time, but because he had no previous um, run-ins with the law, his sentence guidelines was less than someone who may have been arrested for drugs or, you know, an, another felony, you know. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that at all. And to see him have no remorse, um, because I'm a Christian, and I went in there thinking with an open mind, you know, two mothers lost their children, but seeing no remorse in him, um, I wish he would have got more time. As devastating as Nikki's death has been for her loved ones, something positive came from her murder, an important piece of legislation in Washington state. Confident transgender daughter who was very loving, optimistic. A full year before David Bogdanov's murder trial, Nikki's mom spoke in front of the Washington state legislature in support of House Bill 1687, the Nikki Kuhnhausen Act. Now this bill... The bill sought to end what's known as the gay or trans panic defense in Washington. Similar legislation had been introduced in the legislature in the past, but after Nikki's murder, lawmakers took up the debate once again. If you're not familiar, the panic defense is a legal strategy where a defendant blames a violent act, such as murder, on a victim's gender identity or sexual orientation. In essence, they claim that discovery excuses their loss of self-control and rage. Therefore, they can't be held responsible for their violent reaction. So it's not like a textbook, written out defense. Here's Clark County Deputy Prosecutor Kristen Arnault. But it is a approach through the diminished capacity defense. In the 80s and 90s, it developed as this, this way that you were so shocked and appalled by finding out that someone was trans that you became in this diminished capacity state. And I think there were some cases that were successful at arguing that to a jury and then getting uh, a lesser included instruction of manslaughter and maybe getting a conviction on the manslaughter instead of a murder. The panic defense is rarely used, but can be effective for defendants in criminal trials. For context, David Bogdanov didn't technically use this strategy. He claimed self-defense. He could have used it, though, since the crime was committed before this legislation was introduced. 
Still, Nikki's loved ones wanted to prevent any defendant from being able to use the panic defense in the future. And it should not be a legal justification for violence. In the spring of 2020, lawmakers debated the bill. What this bill does, it removes a possible defense for the kind of thing that happened to Nikki. It overwhelmingly passed the House and Senate and went on to Governor Jay Inslee for signing. Uh, Today we are joining other states to preserve civil rights for a marginalized group. This bill brings us closer to telling the LGBTQ community they are valued in Washington and closer to honoring Nikki and the positive stride she made on behalf of the trans community. On March 5th of 2020, Nikki's law became official in the state of Washington. So with this, um, I'm happy to sign this bill. And uh, having done so, everyone can applaud and bump elbows. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is a statement by the legislature. Deputy Prosecutor Colin Hayes. A good one that this kind of defense is not going to be tolerated and it's not a thing that exists here. So it's important to have it on the books. We wanted to learn more about the cultural and historical significance of the panic defense and its impact on criminal cases in America. So we consulted one of the foremost experts on the topic. Uh, my name is Karsten Andreessen. I'm an associate professor and I'm at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, and I'm a criminal justice professor, and I study the gay and transpanic defense. Karsten Andreessen began researching the panic defense in 2018. He studied hundreds of cases dating back to the late 1960s. But I actually have this big database where I've identified about 400 cases that happened from about 1969 forward, Andreessen got the idea after a conversation with his wife, a family law attorney who's done a lot of work with LGBTQ plus families. At the time, there had been three high-profile panic defense cases in Texas. And so I was complaining to her about these cases. There was a trans panic case, there was a gay panic case, and then another gay panic case. And I was irritated. And she said basically, well, <laughs> you're a researcher. Why don't, why don't you research this if it irritates you? And then I said, you know what, that's a good idea. For Andreessen, a father of three, it's been a challenge to set boundaries when it comes to his work. The more he researches these horrific murders, the harder it is for him to stop. It's become a calling. There are times where I have a couple of backpacks and I'm reading documents or I'm using my phone and my kids are playing all around me. He even remembers a time when he took his family to Disney World. His kids were waiting in line to get on rides. And Andreessen was reading court documents detailing a brutal murder. So sometimes I look like a, you know, a stereotypical researcher or professor. And then other times I just look like a parent uh, on his or her phone. But I'm, I'm on my phone researching these cases. Uh, but, I, I, you know, it takes a lot of time. And so basically everywhere you could be and do research, that's where I am. Andreessen keeps a thorough database of his work and uses newspaper stories and court and government records to mine for information. For each victim, he keeps a unique digital folder full of documents related to the crime. But what I do try to do is get a summary of sort of how the criminal case went in court, uh, get a sense of some of the comments that the defense attorney made, and get some of the comments that the defendant made. So I sort of try to create a summary of what happened in the case and how it transpired. 
The panic defense can be hard to categorize because it takes different forms in trials. It can be used overtly or extremely subtly and plays into jurors' prejudices or personal biases. The strategy is typically used alongside an insanity defense or claims of self-defense. In 2013, the American Bar Association called for an end to the panic defense. As of this recording, in the spring of 2022, it's only been banned in 16 states plus the District of Columbia. And legislation to ban the panic defense has been introduced, but not passed, in 12 other states. It was a gruesome discovery at this fence. Late Wednesday afternoon, as the sun was setting, two bicyclists approached. And at first, they said it looked like a scarecrow had been tied to the fence. Perhaps the most notorious case involving the panic defense was the 1998 murder of Wyoming college student Matthew Shepard. It became one of the most well-known anti-gay hate crimes in American history. A hate crime, according to police, who say the two met Shepard in this Laramie bar. Shepard, who was gay, was a student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. He was abducted, beaten, and tied to a fence by two men he met at a bar. Tricked him into believing they were gay too, then the three left together. When Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson stood trial, they alleged that Shepard made unwanted sexual advances toward them, causing them to violently panic. Was allegedly beaten with the butt of a pistol, burned with cigarette butts, and finally tied spread eagle to the fence, left to die. Their defense failed. They were both sentenced to life in prison. And even though the strategy was not successful in this case, it has been in others. According to the Williams Institute at UCLA Law, the so-called panic defense has appeared in court opinions in half of U.S. states since the 1960s. The American Bar Association says there are three main variations of the strategy. The first is through an insanity or diminished capacity defense. That's when a defendant blames the discovery of a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity for causing them to go into a panic. And the next thing you know, you're arrested and they tell you you committed murder. That's almost never successful. The next variation is the provocation defense, which argues that the victim propositioned the defendant with a sexual advance, leading the defendant to kill them. It basically says that you would not have killed somebody except they provoked you. And the provocation is maybe a trans person said hello to you, or maybe you were having sex or some sort of romantic contact with them, and then suddenly uh, you became horrified by what you were doing, and it, it puts the blame on the victim. They provoked you, and so you had no choice but to respond. Those are excuse defenses. The last variation of the panic defense seen in courtrooms is a broad one, the claim of self-defense. A defendant claims that because of the victim's gender identity or sexual orientation, the victim would have been able to cause serious harm to the defendant. And then they responded with violence. Uh, And that's a justification defense. If that defense works, they will be acquitted and it is not considered a homicide. It's considered a justified homicide and that they were in the right because they were trying to protect themselves. And in that, you can see uh, that can be effective in some cases at either reducing the charge or at a complete acquittal. And there are some sort of horrifying cases where where it did not seem that it was self-defense. But I think what's happened in the last 20 years is that people have been able to either use self-defense or to subtly play off biases that we have 
and that has resulted in people also being able to use it. But it was certainly much more effective in the past. And in the past, to be honest, these cases might not even get to court. They might just sort of be quietly dealt with and they don't make it to public attention. One of the most disturbing pieces of data that Andreessen has uncovered in murders of gay or transgender victims involves what he calls overkill. So these murders are, um, there's a lot more force that is needed. Often they involve uh, knives or uh, personal weapons, your hands, your feet. Uh, but with knives, people are stabbed more than five times. They're, they're stabbed uh, many more times than you would need to kill somebody. Uh, but these are called overkill because the person is stabbed 20, 30, 40, uh, 100, 200 times. So there is an uh, extraordinary amount of violence that is expended there. And specifically, when it comes to violence against transgender women of color who face disproportionately high rates of violence. But it is stunning. The demographics for trans women, the, the race, ethnicity is totally different than for gay men in the ages as well. Gay men are usually... 10 years older than their, the, the victims, than their offenders. With trans women, they're sort of killed by people that are much closer in age to them. They're women of color, and they face a lot of uh, economic challenges. They did not have money or resources, and it, it's horrific. As for what Andreessen has been able to glean from his research studying criminal trials over the past 50 years is that although the panic defense is rarely used and largely unsuccessful in getting acquittals, it can be very effective when it comes to reducing the charges a defendant faces and their prison sentence. So in this study, about 30% of the time, 30% of the time, it results in a reduction of charge. Now, maybe in a homicide of just uh, between two men and there was nothing there, that you might be able to sort of get a reduction anyway of 30%. But I found that it's about a 30% reduction. And then in about 5% of these cases, which go from, I believe, about 2000 to 2018, about 5% of these cases, there's a complete acquittal. And going back the last 40 years, Andreessen estimates the acquittal rate is closer to 8%. Now, you know, so somebody would say to me, and I've had people say, well, if it's not very effective, why study it? But, but I think the narrative are the stories that come out of these trials when they're reported in the media, even if the person gets the, gets the death penalty, even if the person goes away to prison for a long time, there's a, a narrative that goes out into the public. And the idea is that uh, gay people are dangerous, gay people target people or, or uh, gay people are, are always trying to to, you know, victimize straight people. And so that that story, more than the outcome of the trial, I think is, is really dangerous and contributes to this atmosphere. But what ultimately drives me is I don't want this to happen. I would like this to be rare. Uh, in the United States, I mean, I don't want anybody to feel afraid. <laughs> stop the killing, stop the violence, and I don't want people to feel afraid. That's I think that's what I come away with. My name is Tori Cooper. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Tori Cooper is with the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ advocacy group in the U.S. I'm the Director of Community Engagement for the Trans Justice Initiative at the Human Rights Campaign. In 2021, the HRC labeled violence against transgender Americans an epidemic. That year became the deadliest on record, with at least 57 murders of transgender victims. 
the year before, in 2020, there were at least 54. And the words at least are important here. And we always use the term that we know of because we know that far too often the deaths of trans and non-binary individuals goes underreported or unreported. Folks are misgendered. Um, they're sometimes simply uh, subjugated to very little press time, if it, as it were. You know, families sometimes are not cooperative or, or purposefully or by accident. Uh, they sometimes will misgender a person and that in many ways actually prohibits us and other entities from telling people stories accurately. But then in addition to that, the numbers, the way that we've tracked and then the way that other national entities track as well, the numbers against black and brown trans people and more specifically black trans women continues to escalate as well. The data shows that not all victims are killed by strangers, like Nikki Kuhnhausen was. Many are murdered by acquaintances, friends, and even family members or intimate partners. But what we do know is that most of the stories that we report on, a large, certainly more than half, are killed by someone that they actually knew, that they had some type of relationship with. Intimate partner violence is real, and it's certainly a percentage of the folks that we're reporting on also are killed as a result of intimate partner violence. And that doesn't just mean, in this particular case, folks that they have had a sexual relationship. We find that there have been a number of people who have been killed by folks who they knew on social media and exchanged a lot of flirty inbox messages, and folks with who they went to school with. We reported on that and folks that they've known in a bunch of different ways and some were neighbors and some were actually in relationships, romantic relationships. And so as trans people, if we can't trust the people that we know, then who is it that we can't trust? Yeah, I was just going to ask you, what does that kind of, that data, what does that tell you? Well, it's one of the things that it reminds, it doesn't tell me, but it reminds me that there are folks out here who don't like you simply for who you are, or they like simply what they can get from you. And that's treacherous, it's dangerous, and it says a lot about where our society is headed. I still have hope and I still have belief and faith and all these other things, but it also says that as human beings, some of us have this disdain for humanity or things and people who may be different from ourselves. And rather than taking these steps to learn about folks and appreciate the differences, we simply want to get rid of things that we don't understand or things that we don't like for whatever reason or things that we might be ashamed of because it reflects back on us in some way that we think of as negative. The FBI also keeps detailed information on hate crimes, and its data also shows that the LGBTQ population is disproportionately affected by bias crimes, and crimes against transgender people are especially violent. The year 2020 had the highest number of hate crimes on gender identity since 2008. But advocates believe that number is much higher, as those numbers only reflect crimes reported by authorities to the FBI. Advocates say what makes it challenging to get accurate numbers is that oftentimes victims are misgendered, 
The HRC reports that at least three in four transgender murder victims are misgendered in initial police or media reports. And then there's something called dead naming. That's when victims are referred to only as their birth name after they've changed their name as part of their gender transition. This can be done by the victim's family members, police departments, or media outlets. In Nikki's case, the Vancouver Police Department used Nikki's legal or birth name and the name Nikki in its initial press release. As the case progressed, you could see how officials became more intentional with the language they used. They used she-her pronouns when describing Nikki and referred to her as Nikki. And this carried through to other avenues, like media reports and during the trial. According to Tori Cooper, that's how it should be done. I've often said that there's a difference between telling stories truthfully and accurately. In the United States, it's very difficult for any trans person, but specifically for a 17-year-old person, uh, to have their gender markers changed. All right? So truthful would be what was on that person's government-issued ID. That's what the law knows them by. That's great. But if people didn't know Nikki by the name that was on her ID, then the police are actually hampering their own investigation. And so we have to make sure that we're telling stories and the whole police and and all types of individuals. That's also teachers. That's also uh, healthcare providers. Hold them accountable to be sure to not just tell things truthfully, but also telling them accurately. Because whatever name was on her ID was truthful, but accuracy is making sure that we're identifying Nikki as Nikki. Because then it makes it easier for us to identify a potential killer. What are some steps we need to be taking that we have to take as a society and just as fellow human beings in stopping this or curbing this problem in general? Every time that you hear anybody saying disparaging words about trans and gender non-conforming people, that you immediately address it and don't allow it to linger in the air. Three years have passed since Nikki Kuhnhausen's murder, and there has been an outpouring of community support that Nikki's inner circle feels deeply. Still, Nikki's loved ones and those who have fought to tell her story have also experienced many hurtful comments blaming Nikki for what happened to her. We combated a lot of, well, if she would have just disclosed that she was trans, then this wouldn't have happened. Here's Lyndon Walls, a member of the Justice for Nikki Task Force. And at what point, when that was his reaction, was that a safe disclosure? I don't think that 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 was safe for her to disclose to him at any point, based on how he did respond and react and ended up taking her life. So I think socially people want to consume the trans story because they're curious but they also don't understand the nuanced conversations around pronouns and gender and what it means for someone to socially transition and how that gets navigated and handled. 
since you touched on that, can we talk about some of the things you heard uh, specifically with, well, if she would have disclosed to him? Like, what were just some comments you read or messages you got, things you read? I, th- I think that the hardest comment to stomach is around the she got what she deserved, she was engaging in risky behavior, of course this happened to her. Um, ultimately, that it's victim blaming. The pieces around had she have disclosed, those are the most common. And even still, anytime Nikki is talked about, you have people who are like, great, I wish he was sentenced longer. And that is the majority of people that are engaging and commenting on public forums. But then you always have the outliers who believe that that disclosure would have changed the situation in any way. And then that leads into the idea of an entitlement into medical information. Whether or not someone is transgender, that's private medical data. That isn't something that you have to disclose as cisgendered people or people who present in in a binary People don't feel entitled to know what your life looks like or what happens or exists under your clothes. It just is. They know woman, man, and we live in this very binary world. And when you don't fit, people feel entitled to ask you questions. Everyone who knew Nikki is dealing with their grief differently. For Nikki's older brother, Alex Kuhnhausen, it's hard not to hold on to the immense anger he has for David Bogdanov. I hate to ask you about the suspect involved, but do you hold a lot of anger toward him? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not good with forgiving people. (laughs) I'm not good at that. Try not to hold resentments, you know what I mean? But that's something that's so deep and just... Part of my heart's missing, you know? Do you try to think about Nikki often, or is it easier to just kind of not go there emotionally? Little little bit of both. Sometimes it's, like, hard not to think about her, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's just, like, her talking shit is in my head, you know? Like, she'd be talking shit that nonstop, and then just, I think about that a lot, you know? And then there's some times where it's like, I'm having like a tough day or something else happened and I try to block that out because I know it'll make it worse. And Alex is still processing the death of his father too, who died after Nikki's murder. Some of Nikki's ashes were buried with him. I still haven't cried about it. It just, I don't know, it hasn't hit me yet. Same with like my dad, you know what I mean? Like since my dad's passed, I haven't really, I haven't cried about that either. And it's just like, it's starting to become real, you know, because like next week I'm going to go visit my dad's headstone and stuff. So I don't know how that's going to go. But like with this interview, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of giving me mixed emotions, you know what I mean? I'm thankful for that you guys are reaching out and doing this stuff because a lot of families are in need, you know. There's a lot of people out there that can use the help from me and my family to help, you know what I mean, accept who their family members are or even be able to get the help that they need to be able to be themselves. I guess, like, moving forward, what is, what is 
someone who's gone through the grief process of losing several very close family members like you have, how do you keep going every day? Just understanding what I've lost, you know. I, I'm a drug addict, you know what I mean? And I've not, like, throughout my whole life, I've just never felt any pain, remorse, anything. I don't feel feelings. I've never felt, felt feelings since I was 10 years old, you know. First time I've gotten high, and it's like I'd rather chase that high than feel those feelings. But sitting in prison, you know, it's just like losing my sister, my dad, my stepdad, my uncle, you know what I mean? Just so many people just lost, gone, you know? It's like, that's a high, and it's not even a good high, you know what I mean? But I get high off of just thinking about that, you know, just thinking about what I lost and how I can change what I'm doing and maybe be there for somebody because if I'm getting high, I'm, I would never talk to you. I would never talk to anybody else. You know what I mean? It's So it's like if I can empower somebody else to be there for their kid or be there for their mom or dad or whoever it may be, cousin, friend, whatever it is, if I can let them know how I'm feeling so they feel the same way, you know what I mean? That, that's, that's what motivates me. That's what I can do to change my life, you know? But um, eventually I did. <laughs> eventually I cried. Um, and uh, I don't know, I just wanted to be there for her mom. And, you know. Uh... Nikki's best friend, Taylor Watts, can't help but think about the future David Bogdanov will go on to experience someday when he's released from prison and how Nikki was robbed of that opportunity for her own future. He's 26, so that means he gets out if it was 20 years. 46 years old. He still gets to have kids. Um, he still gets to have a 50th birthday party. Um, he still gets to do all that. You know, he can get married if he wants to. Um, I think that's very unfair. Um, I don't think you should be able to take somebody's life. And I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, uh, I don't think it's fair. What does life look like after Nikki's been gone? What is, is there an emptiness? Is there... It's emptier, yeah. Um, obviously, I have to keep going. Um, uh, not very many laughs, you know? It's not the same hanging out with just me and Ariel without Nikki there. Um, you know, we, we, would, we would always laugh. You know, it was never a bad time. So it's, it's definitely different. Um, it sucks. What is her story that's still going to you? What is it that you would want people to know about Nikki and her story, and what can we all learn from her? You know, just be who you are and don't be ashamed of who you are. Um, she was never once ashamed of who she was. Um, and she wasn't just a transgender teenage girl. She was Nikki, and uh, she, she had a lot of life, and, you know, she was very bright. Um, she was very caring and loving. Yeah. Do you, um, do you talk to Nikki? Um, that's such a weird question. I guess, yeah, in a way, sometimes I do. If I know I'm waking up and it's gonna be a hard day. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say to her What's, if you could talk to her Just one more time? Help me. <laughs> do what? Guide me. <laughs> um, I would just hug her. Yeah. 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 
You obviously love her so much. <laughs> a lot, yeah. I miss her so much. <laughs> Even those who barely knew Nikki have been impacted in a poignant way by her death and her legacy. Without Rahelio Salas Garay, the beargrass picker, Nikki's remains never would have been discovered on that rainy December day on Larch Mountain, and Nikki's family never would have known what happened to her. Understanding the impact he's had has touched Rahelio deeply. I feel happy because I felt that I did what I could do, and I thank God that, well, that family at the end of the day found her whereabouts. Because in situations like these, you don't know if your child is alive or dead, or what could be happening to them, where they are. Thousands of things could happen. Those are some of the things I think go through your mind. I feel at peace. I feel happy. When I saw her mom, we gave each other a hug. She cried and so did I. Tears came to my eyes and, well, I really feel, I feel like I did a good thing for them. While Nikki's disappearance started as a missing persons case, it ended up being the first homicide investigation Vancouver police detective Dave Jensen had ever worked. The first time he had to tell a mother her baby girl was dead. And just like for everyone involved in bringing this case to a close, it's taken its toll. How do you process and come to terms with working all your cases, but especially Nikki's case? Um, I don't really process the feelings that I get from all of this as an emotion, per se. I've had to deal with uh, physical manifestations of stress, eventually realizing that this is actually uh, stress and trauma that I am experiencing, even though I think I'm not experiencing it. Right, thinking I'm just fine, but later uh, realizing that I'm that I'm not. Um, I think if you try to just you know be RoboCop and say this doesn't bother me, and you know keep people at arm's length and not be people with them, I think being people with them actually helps me to process better what I'm experiencing secondhand instead of trying to tell myself that's not happening. But the thing that does really motivate me is I don't like people who victimize other people. Or I don't like that. I don't like the situation where people do that to each other. Um, I think I just have a fundamental sort of sense of of fairness and that people deserve to be treated fairly by, by each other. And whether Dave Jensen knows it or not, he's become a sort of guiding light for Nikki's mom, Lisa Woods. He's helped her through the most unimaginable times in her life, simply by caring about what happened to Nikki and never quitting on getting her justice. I'd say we've developed a real relationship, you know. There's a fondness there now that wasn't there at the beginning. And, you know, although we don't hang out together, you know, there's a, you know, definite... uh, a definite affection for each other. Do you keep in touch with him? Yes. Yeah. What What does that relationship look like today? Um, he's my friend. He's he's in my phone as my hero. So you know he's amazing. And that can be rare because people don't always I know. have um, that 
relationship or maybe that experience? I feel Nikki blessed us with him. I really do. Because he, he was definitely there for me, one of my major supporters. For Lisa, it's hard not to see Nikki in life's little moments each day. Like when she opens the fridge, she remembers how Nikki used to take any extra food they had and give to the homeless. Or if Lisa hears a Disney song, she can't help but think of how Nikki never got the chance to go to Disneyland to see the princesses. Ariel was her favorite. When you think about Nikki's legacy, she's clearly touched from everyone we've talked to. She's touched so many lives in life and in death. And how do you hope that people remember her? What do you want them to remember Nikki like? As this bubbly little girl who has taken a small adventure and make it so exciting, like a trip to Disneyland, you know, just just going to the park. You know, she, she really had a way of turning everybody's day upside down into a happy, eventful day, you know, um, bringing happiness. She definitely carried glitter with her and spread it all around, you know. Um, she was she was an amazing young woman. Lisa is adjusting to what life looks like without Nikki. She has to take it day by day. There are times she'll get a phone call and her heart skips a beat because she instinctually thinks it's Nikki calling. And other times, the anger creeps back in. So... At first, I was really angry, I, and I get angry still. Um, but to be honest, the only thing that's gotten me through is God. So, and I know uh, at first I was really angry at him and, and, you know, claimed to hate him, but I never stopped talking to him. And so um, I really feel that that's truly what's gotten me through um, is my relationship with God. Um, because in the beginning, I, I was a real mess. Um, I wasn't doing well at all, and there was uh, an attempted suicide and everything, so um, I'm doing better now, and I believe that's because of my relationship with God. Do you, have you found forgiveness, or is that something you think you will find? For David? Mm -hmm. Mm. I bounce back and forth because of my heart, you know, and um, forgiveness isn't for him, it's for me. And um, I don't like walking around with that hatred. Um, it, it destroys what I'm trying to represent, what I'm trying to represent is Nikki's light, you know, and then her shine and having that hatred inside me, um, it, it really blocks that, that pathway, you know, so, um, I, I wouldn't say that I've forgiven him, but I'm, I'm working on it. Have you come to a place where you know, where you don't blame yourself anymore? No. No. Yeah, it's, I'm sure no matter how many people tell you don't, to not do that I, and it's not your fault, it's probably I, hard to get be outside of your head with that. I'm better than I used to be, but... Um, yeah. It's not completely gone. I'm working on it. One of the most emotional and candid moments we experienced with Lisa was during our interview. Our producer, Zach, said something to her that touched everyone in the room. I think it's apparent that the love and acceptance that you gave her since she was born and 
just the unconditional love, right? Like you never questioned her when she would tell you that she was a girl growing up. You supported all of it. And I'm very envious of that relationship that you gave. And so as she got older and those tables kind of turned and she was giving you that same kind of, you know, unconditional, unquestioned acceptance and support, I think that it's pretty obvious that your love really rippled out and continues to do so in this community. So, you know, I hope you're proud of what you Thank you. helped to bring to the world. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. There was this one time I was really upset and uh, because, you know, my history isn't that great, but um, I was really upset and I called Nikki and I told her that I was sorry, but I needed to uh, cut my face up to match my insides of how much of a bad mother I felt like I hadn't been there. And um, she said, Mommy, Mommy, look at me. Can you see me? And uh, we were on the phone and I said, yes, I see you. She was like, don't you see how beautiful I am? Don't you see how competent I am? And I said, of course. And she said, I would be some scared little gay boy in the corner, not knowing what to do or where to go if it wasn't for your love. And that made me change my heart on how much I didn't love myself, you know. And that was in May, and she was a smarter in June. Everywhere Lisa goes, she wears a special necklace that holds some of Nikki's ashes. This is Nikki's ashes inside here. And um, this is my husband's wedding ring. So they're together. And you wear it every day? Mm -hmm. And Lisa also proudly dons a tattoo she got in honor of Nikki. I have a little tattoo like her. I always kiss it. <laughs> Taylor Watts got one too. In the same place, Nikki had the exact tattoo. Nikki had it on her arm and she got it uh, probably like a year or two before she passed away. Their tattoo is a semicolon. For some people, it signifies the life of someone who considered suicide and chose not to. For others, a symbol of strength and a permanent reminder that there is more to come in life. What does your tattoo symbolize? Uh, like keep going. It's uh, it's more so like keep going. Uh, you know, the story's not over. Nikki Kuhnhausen would be turning 21 years old in July of 2022. She should be here to celebrate that milestone with her friends. Nikki should have been able to experience a long life full of firsts: her first love, her first trip to Disneyland, and her first day of work as a professional makeup artist. Nikki Kuhnhausen should be alive. But just like the message behind the semicolon tattoo, Nikki's story isn't over. Her memory and her legacy live on. Thanks for listening to Should Be Alive. This was our final episode. 
Should Be Alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please follow and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash shouldbealive and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones, and digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Will Mahon and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with Idea Stack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. This is And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car.